0: Ciao, 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 everybody. My name is Allie Weiss, and welcome back to episode two of Tales of Taboo. Oh, that feels so much better to say than health as hell. Oh, it's like I had an exorcism or a lobotomy in Switzerland, and now I'm back, and I feel amazing. All right, enough of that bullshit. Let's jump into it. So, right after she graduated and moved to New York, One of my good friends from college got a job as an assistant for a very popular reality star who turned into a very successful businesswoman. And growing up in the Manhattan private school system, I had plenty of friends whose parents were prominent business people or celebrities, but I only ever knew them as my friend's parents. And you know, there's a certain delusion that comes with growing up in that world because you think that's normal. And naturally, you never really contemplate what these people might be like to work for or what their business ethics are like. So my friend gets this job and she was the first person I knew who worked on the other side of this exclusive world And I will never forget what her life was like during that time. I mean, she always had two iPhones on her. One was personal and one was work. And she brought them with her everywhere she went, constantly checking them and constantly having anxiety about like missing a single text. So she could never fully let go when we were out drinking with our friends. There was zero work-life balance. And she had a hard time finding a healthy relationship because like literally where was the time? And she told me that her boss would fluctuate between making her feel both wanted and deeply needed. And then on another day, making her feel like a complete piece of shit, like scum of the earth. And when her boss would gift her things, it would always be these incredibly tacky like fake designer bags out of her closet, including a hot pink fake Birkin, which she ended up gifting to me because she's like, I'm not going to wear this, but I know you will, which tells you a lot about how I used to dress at that time. And the funniest thing ever was in the very beginning of a friendship um, that I made like around that time, a new friendship. I like, it later came out that that bag was fake and I had like sold it off at Beacon's Closet or something. Cause I was like, I can't carry this anymore. But my friend was like, Oh, I thought that was real. And my friend also didn't know that I was gifted the fake Birkin. So my friend thought that I or my family had purchased a hot pink Birkin. Um, that's for another time. Jesus Christ. But <laughs> anyway, back to my friend. So. I think the thing that was the most shocking actually was how grossly underpaid she was for this work that she did, which was 24-7. And at the time I was what, 23, 24? And I would constantly be like, babe, stand up for yourself. Like, you work so hard. Ask for more money. It's not that hard. You deserve it. And, you know, like there's fear and Emotional manipulation and the risk of losing both a needed job to survive, but also this crazy access that it gives you to a world that was previously only available through magazines. And none of this occurred to me. I mean, I was young and stupid, but it it was also due to the way that like I grew up. And the fact that I had just graduated acting school, which is nonstop emotional manipulation, but quote unquote, for art. I hate myself. And eventually my friend left that job and she got an executive assistant position for some sort of like business or real estate tycoon who out of the gate offered her six figures. My mind was absolutely fucking blown. I was like six figures for an assistant position. I was obviously so proud of her because she's such a hard worker and she deserved it. But again, I was just clueless about that world. And eventually she moved and we don't talk as much, as much as I'll always love her, But fast forward to four or five years later, and we've entered into this culture of whistleblowing and not having tolerance for mistreatment in the workplace anymore. And all over the media are these stories of rich and powerful people being terrible bosses and doing gross shit in both their personal and their professional lives. And it reminded me of what I watched my friend go through when we were so young. And I was like, okay, It's time to figure out what the fuck really goes on behind closed doors and NDAs, because the same stories are being regurgitated in every newspaper and on every blog, and this this can't be it. And so I did. And after doing the research and reading and listening to all of your submissions on this topic, there are two major conclusions that I came to. The first one, in the words of artist Jenny Holzer, is, Abuse of power comes as no surprise. But that doesn't mean I wasn't repulsed by it. Like, it's just, it's beyond what having a lot of money, which for the record, isn't real. Like, it's literally just paper with dead people's faces on it. it it's crazy what money makes people think they're able to get away with emotionally. Like, the permission that it gives them. And that specific psychological, dam- not damage, dynamic is what I meant to say. Although, yes, the damage too, needs to be explored, you know, in full on another podcast episode. But the emotional abuse is so wild. And everyone who's ever gone through this like truly deserves a severance or retirement package with a year of free therapy. I'm not exaggerating or trying to be funny, like they really do. And the other conclusion that I came to is that, no, my friend was not being overpaid at her second job. $100,000 should be the baseline salary for anyone in that position. Because think about it. When you give up your life, your life, your actual life to help another person, you deserve to put a number value on what your life is worth. And if any of you listening value your lives at under six figures before bonuses and raises, DM me because I can refer you to a good hypnotherapist. We need to work on that. Uh, shout out to Dumois for helping me cast this episode, as they did with Soul Cycle. It's always a privilege. It's always so helpful. And let's get into it, shall we? Submission number one. I worked for a billionaire's wife at her Napa Valley winery, a glamorous, highly private, exclusive place tucked away in the mountains. Think Hermes blankets and Christophila silverware. Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> I don't think so, but go me. I ran the hospitality and sales program as director of hospitality for a few years. A friend at another winery was told about the job and recommended me for it. I went through six interviews over the course of a month and was paid double what other wineries were paying my position. But I was always home late and up early. I would usually get home at night and have 15 minutes to change before an event or dinner if I was lucky. I had to answer emails 24-7 even when I was on vacation, but I was lucky to even get vacation. My responsibilities were managing the hospitality department's schedules, pay, etc. Booking and hosting guests, two or three groups a day on average. The winery only allowed one group on the property at a time to keep it ultra-exclusive, and the experiences were about two hours. It also included driving stick shift vintage Defenders, which sounds cool, but was wildly dangerous considering I had to teach myself stick. I still have nightmares. I did all the sales reports, schmoozed with other wineries and hotels, sent gifts to guests and hotel partners that would refer guests, buying flowers, making cheese boards, stocking wine from the warehouse, throwing parties, making sure the designer chickens and donkeys never escaped from the quaint farm. Before working here, I never knew that there are actually in existence designer chickens that run up to $2,000 and they lay heirloom eggs. Blue, green, white, spotted. Before I started working there, I was warned by other people that there were cameras in the trees to record employees and make sure we were all doing our jobs. I never actually saw said tree cameras, but I definitely tried to spot them. There were cameras in my office and the tasting room. On the first day, the then general manager, there were three that year, quietly walked over and put tape on my computer camera, then not so subtly told me we were being recorded. There was no uniform, but we couldn't wear heels, couldn't paint our nails, no bright colors unless it was close to the color the owner specifically had made by a color artist to be the color of the winery. We had to use full polite words such as thank you instead of thanks, yes instead of yeah, It would be my pleasure instead of sure, and we were often referred to Emily Post for any etiquette issues. The hardest part for me would be going from terrible meetings where people would be panicking or crying and then having guests arrive and immediately needing to switch on the charm and host them for two to three hours. Because everyone would get fired for tiny things, everyone freaked out about everything. Mostly ridiculous stuff like dry cleaning the custom blankets, whole foods running out of tulips, only having mixed olives on the cheese board instead of bright green ones. And by freak out, I mean people would have full-blown panic attacks about these tiny things that the guests didn't really care about, but the owner found incredibly important. I would go from comforting a crying person in the bathroom to telling them not to forget to fold the toilet paper when they were done. And then I'd go talk to the guests and listen to their stories about paying an extra $50,000 just to get the perfect rose gold on their Bentley, or how upset they were when Thomas Keller didn't say hi to them at the French Laundry. Two years before this, I was teaching English in Africa, and my concerns were making sure the kids had something to eat at night. I would just sit through these tastings and try not to feel like I was dying inside, and show up the next day and do it again. The job definitely had perks. Endless wine and gifts from other wineries and guests. Plus, I was flown on the owner's G5 a few times, all alone, to go taste wine abroad. Looking back, I should have asked to bring someone, but I think I was so confused as to why I was even on the plane in the first place that I never even thought of it. I threw several parties for my boss. They were so stressful that I wish I could say I enjoyed them, but I absolutely did not. One time, I remember having a quote-unquote caviar emergency, which means they literally just ran out of caviar. My boss was highly meticulous and paranoid. Everything had to be picture-perfect 100% of the time. We would have three-hour-long meetings, not exaggerating, about the perfect shape of a cookie, which were gifts. We only sold wine." One time I went on vacation and came back to hear that my assistant had gotten fired for refilling the flower water a day late. I met a lot of great people hosting wine tours, though. My favorite person was a guy who worked his whole life in a very successful 9-to-5 job, but was so miserable, he ended up, he believes, giving himself a very major stroke and ended up in a wheelchair in his late 40s. It changed his and his husband's entire outlook on life. They were so busy working that they never focused on the important things, such as friends and enjoying the moment and actually spending all the money they were saving up for their own enjoyment, not to just sit and watch it pile up in a bank. He was honestly one of the happiest people I have ever met, and it was such an inspiration. Luckily, I never had to do anything too crazy, but one time I did have to help bury cow horns filled with poop because it's supposed to be biodynamic and help cool the soil or something. I'm still a bit lost on the logic behind that one. I was always prepared to get fired because that was just the culture, which I think set me up for thinking about quitting. I was pretty much the only staff member that lasted over a year. Everyone got fired for tiny things because the owner really wanted her project to be absolutely perfect and was paranoid that she hadn't hired the right people. The only people were higher that the only people higher than me, excuse me, were her and the GM, but we went through three GMs before I left. The first one who was a total nightmare, had a breakdown, which is very sad but still a nightmare, got fired and was replaced all in my first month. People quit constantly. People were fired constantly. I was almost fired for things I never did. People on my team were fired for things they never did. It was overall chaos, and then you had to put a very professional, warm demeanor on for guests that you'd sit with for hours at a time. Eventually, I was so burnt out and so over how pointless it all was that I quit and started going to some much-needed therapy. My boyfriend and his dad were planning a trip abroad that I really wanted to join in on, but I knew it wouldn't be approved. I looked at someone on my team one night and just asked, would you be okay if I quit? She said yes. And 10 minutes later, I was in the owner's office resigning. I went on the trip but told them I would stay on until they found my replacement. Six months later, they hadn't found a replacement. So I had to call it. I started my own private wine tasting company afterwards, which was fantastic until COVID. It was actually a blessing in disguise for me as horrible as it was because I started writing again, which has always been my dream. I recently got hired to write a screenplay, which never would have happened if I stayed in the wine industry. Submission number two, and this one is really wild. This person worked back to back to back for like some of the most powerful people on the face of the earth. So here we go. For seven years, I worked at Arnell Group. I worked directly for Sarah, Peter Arnell's wife. I started as number two and was promoted to number one. It was the Devil Wears Prada, except that Sarah was and is a lovely person. We had free breakfast and lunch every day, and I could order a car service to take me around the city and run whatever errands were needed that day. This would run the gamut from delivering materials to a client meeting to buying underwear for Peter. I worked with him through his weight loss. At the height of his weight, he wore the same thing every day. White shirt, khaki pants. I would be sent up to Nike to buy every pair they had in a certain size. I was accused of trying to open my own store because no one could believe that anyone would want 10 pairs of the same pants. Peter and Sarah were friends with Martha Stewart. She came over one day to inspect Sarah's ovens because she wanted to make sure they were good enough for the turkey. The ovens passed inspection, but the pepper grinder did not, and I was sent out in an SUV to find a better one. William Sonoma came through. When Peter was bored, he would come out of his suite of offices and prowl the main floor. He had his favorite targets, people he knew he could make cry. He would have his assistants stand and take notes while he berated people anyone from the head of the department to one of the porters. Peter spent some time in Italy and said that he could speak the language fluently. He could not. He would say some words like espresso or calamari and then basically just speak English, but with a seriously offensive accent, putting an A or an O at the end of a word and using his hands a lot. We had a former NYPD officer as our office manager slash front desk person, and he was armed at all times. Peter had a gun license as well. He would carry a pistol on his ankle for no other reason than to show it in meetings. Peter had FDNY gear in the back of his car and would have his driver, Luis, take him to the scene of a fire, put his outfit on, and take photos. He told people he was a deputy firefighter. He was not. Holy shit. That was Allie's note, holy shit. That was not written in here, but like, holy shit. A lot of people thought that Peter lost weight because of a tummy tuck. I can confirm that he didn't. I paid all of their bills. He did it by going on an amazingly strict diet. At one point, he was consuming nothing but oranges and seaweed, both of which are very high in vitamin C, so his skin turned orange. He did have surgery to remove skin. All of this said, Sarah spared me from the worst of it, and like soldiers on a field, I am still good friends with a lot of the other women who served time working for Peter. The Arnell group started to implode. We had moved to Seven World Trade Center and had a huge floor. We never filled it, and then the 2008 economic crisis hit, and they started letting people go. I knew Sarah would never fire me, but I also knew it was a sinking ship. I gave her six months' notice, not kidding, and eventually found what I thought would be a great new job with the Bronfmans, Allie's note, Hannah Bronfman's family. It was in the Seagrams building, and they were philanthropists, and I was going to accompany Matthew on investor meetings. That is not what happened. Stacy had me working for her, and by working, I mean counting and cataloging every single item in their office, including tampons. We would meet once a week to go over the spreadsheet. Stacy, last week we had 10 tampons, and now we have nine. What do you think happened? Me, well, Stacy, I'm guessing one of the women on staff had her period and used it. Stacy, blank stare. Me, we're low on sugar. Should I buy some more? Matthew owned a number of Dunkin' Donuts locations. One was down the block from our office. I was told to go to the store and take a bunch of the sugar packets. Why should we have to pay for sugar twice? This just, quote unquote, made more sense. Once a week, I was sent to the franchise to get coffee, sugar, cups, stirs, the whole lot. Didn't matter if they were in the middle of a rush earning money. I was to stop everything and ask them to refill our stock. We needed a second assistant and my friend was looking for a job. She came to work with Stacy, and it lasted a month. When the time came for her to quit, she asked that I be in the room. I thought it was strange, but she said she needed me there for support. That allowed me to witness the insane exchange wherein my friend said she was quitting and Stacy said she refused to accept her resignation. And then she tried to physically block the door. I had to convince Stacy to move. My friend walked out of the room and never came back. Stacy told me my friend was weak, that people left her constantly because they were intimidated by her strength and determination. Their marriage was a mess. Stacy would constantly scream at Matthew and threaten to divorce him. He had already been divorced twice, and she knew he wanted to avoid a third. Every fight came down to her wanting more in the prenup, and every time he would give in. I had to leave. On my last day, she took me out to get manny pedis and told me she knew I would be back. I never saw her again. When they did finally get divorced, Matthew reached out via LinkedIn to let me know. Then I went to work for Linda Godson Robinson at BlackRock. Allie's note, asset management group. Very large and famous and successful one. I was second assistant. There were four to six assistants at any one time. Her number one had been with her for 14 years. A woman I knew from my time at Arnell Group was with her for seven so I thought this would be a good fit. It was not. Linda did zero work for the company. The rumor was that she had slept with the CFO when they were in college together, and perhaps she had some dirt on him. We had to print out every email, sort them by subject, and then draft and present responses to her. She didn't write a single one. We spent hours with her at the hair salon. She had her favorite Starbucks order, Grande Very Berry Hibiscus, No Sugar, Extra Ice, Extra Shaken. We had to go down to the Starbucks in the lobby of BlackRock multiple times a day to get it for her. One assistant was in charge of her orchid. There had to be updates every day as to the status of the orchid. Was it watered? Why or why not? She had two kids who she never spoke to. They had multiple tutors and did none of their own work. The tutors would write essays for them and then help the kids commit them to memory so that they could regurgitate them the next day in class. Linda came from money. Her dad was Freeman Godson, most famous as one half of Amos and Andy. I did not know about this when I took the job. My mom is white and my dad is black. Had I been aware, I never would have signed on. When I did find out, I went to ask her second-in-command about it, a guy named Matthew. He told me that, in fact, because of her connection to Amos and Andy, Linda very much understood what it was to be black in America. You see... When they had to transfer schools, everyone was surprised when she walked in the class. Her teachers and classmates had expected her to be black and were so happy to see that she was actually white. Because of that experience, Linda knew the racism that black people experienced every day, so I should be grateful for her understanding and compassion. Ugh. In the six months I was there, Linda cycled through 10 assistants. While I was interviewing for Linda, I also met with Ron Perelman, Ali's note, investment legend worth approximately $3.7 billion and owner of Revlon. I stayed in contact with his office, and when I decided to leave Linda, I went to work for him. This was a mistake. They are friends. At MacAndrews and Forbes, where Ron works, all of the women are called by their first names. All the men are to be called by their last name. The in-house counsel liked to comment on the women's bodies. He especially liked the number three's chest. She knew this and wore extra low shirts. I was number four of eight total assistants. The number one insisted on keeping the number two, even though Mr. Perelman didn't like her. The woman who sat behind me, number six, came from Harvey Weinstein's office. She told me it was okay that she sat in the back corner because she was, quote, fat and ugly, her words, and no one should have to look at her. Every day, Mr. Perelman would take a nap from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., so we would all have to sit in silence for those two hours. We weren't allowed to leave on the off chance that he woke up and needed something. Mr. Perelman had separate phones for different people. He never took direct calls or emails. We would have to call people from our phones and take messages. We could not send emails outside of the organization. Only number one and number three could do that. Mr. Perelman had a phone just for John Bon Jovi. Literally. He was the only person who texted him to that phone. I would have to type out the text and put it on a table outside Mr. Perelman's office. Number one would then bring it in. He would dictate a response, and I would then type it into the phone. He was also good friends with Jamie Foxx. I was in the room when he gave Jamie the Verizon commercial. He just called up and asked if Jamie would like it. Jamie said yes. Mr. Perelman then called someone at Verizon and told him to cast Jamie, and that was it. Mr. Perelman refused to go to his grandson's birthday party in Washington, D.C. There was only one hotel where he would stay, and it was too far from the place where the celebration was being held. By one block. So he declined. All the assistants said that his daughter-in-law was a bitch because clearly she had chosen that location knowing it would be quote-unquote difficult for him to attend. He went down to Mar-a-Lago all the time. I had to text Ivanka Trump to get the table he liked. It was on that trip that I was asked to track down his father's favorite prostitute. I had to go on my personal Facebook page to find her and arrange the meeting and the payment. All of the women talked about how nasty she was and how pathetic it was that she would have this job. All I could think was, what's the difference between her and us? I was made to feel horrible about myself all day long, and the only reason I didn't quit was because I was making $175,000 a year. One week in, I knew it was a mistake, but I couldn't think to go home and tell my husband that I was going to walk away from all that money. But two and a half weeks in, they called me up to HR and fired me. They gave me a month's severance. I must have had the biggest smile on my face. They couldn't figure out what was happening. I was so glad to be free of them. Submission number three. I worked for the son and heir of a billionaire investor from a famous hotel family that is often referred to as one of the wealthiest families in America. I was at one of his startups for about three years, referred by another person who was working at the company. He started the company with a rich socialite, and the two of them hired a lot of their rich friends from high school, college, and just general people that they hung out with. It was a super toxic work environment. Imagine mean girls plus fashion world plus rich people looking down on regular people. The office was on a prime street in Soho. The management was so terrible, but to be fair, they were struggling also, since the people who started the company were mostly never around, and when they were, they would take over and demand everyone drop everything they were doing to cater to whatever they needed. The guy who started the company would literally sit at anyone's desk, whichever one he felt like, regardless of whose it was. Then he would eat his lunch or breakfast and just leave his trash there. I once complained to my partner about it, and he reminded me that a billionaire has probably never cleaned up after himself before. People came in at whatever time and left at whatever time. The VP and HR who ran the company day-to-day would hide in a conference room and leave early. The vice president was under so much pressure, she would slack me at midnight, 3 a.m., 5 a.m., it didn't matter. There were no boundaries." People definitely said politically correct things all the time. Excuse me, politically incorrect things all the time. They would also invite us out to drinks or meals or over to their house and really act like we all lived the same lifestyle as them. I swear they didn't realize other people lived in one bedroom apartments in Brooklyn. I felt very disposable, and we were in fact actually disposable as they would fire and hire people all the time. They would also start new companies and have us work on them while working at our current jobs and hire like 20 new people and get super excited and pump all this money into it and then just decide it wasn't a good idea anymore and close it out of nowhere and let everyone go. They seriously never realized that people left their jobs because of their big promises and then would just leave them jobless a few weeks later. All you had to do to earn praise was act like one of the boys, but you could fall out of favor just as quickly. Everyone was pitted against each other. Everyone was fighting for themselves. It caused a lot of paranoia amongst coworkers and backstabbing. And HR would gaslight everyone and cause even more paranoia. Everyone was afraid to go to her because she had so many times told others what other people had gone to her for. I had so much anxiety and stress while working the job and also afterwards. It definitely gave me sleeping problems. And honestly, I now have PTSD from working there. I know many of my old co-workers have said the same thing. And lastly, written submission number four. When I graduated from college, my first job was as a front office agent in the spa department of an exclusively for women five-star hotel in the country I reside in. Members of the royal family were our main VIPs. I was completely astonished during the first couple of months, but eventually got used to it. I worked in the hospitality industry for about a year and a couple of months. During my time in that industry, I met one of the best princesses I've ever met. A few years later, my sister, who was the first to work directly for a princess, asked me if I was interested to work as an executive secretary for the cousin of her boss. She was about to launch a startup graphic design agency and was building her team from scratch. I was unemployed at that time due to personal reasons and thought to myself that I would be a fool if I didn't at least give this offer a shot. The job was basically handed to me on a silver platter since members of the royal family prefer to employ people recommended by someone they know personally. I went to the interview and lo and behold, she was my former client while I was working at the five-star hotel I mentioned earlier, and the rest was history. Working with her has been one of the highlights of my career and life in general, Since it was a creative industry, I felt like I was feeding my soul every time I went to work. The environment was pretty laid back, a mix of both glamorous and casual at the same time. I was pretty much doing the typical tasks of an EA in any industry, assisting the CEO in planning, organizing, and directing the overall operations and administration of the company, and making appointments and schedules. After a year of working with her, I got promoted to project manager. Working for and with her has always been so much fun. You would think that a part of my job would include doing coffee runs in the morning, but it was actually the other way around. Every morning when she was on her way to the office, she would text me to ask what I'd like for breakfast and what my coffee choice was for the day. The best thing about her, too, was that she never gave off the vibe that she's the boss. I never felt any hierarchical pressure from her. She was more like a friend that I work with. When it's time for lunch, if you were craving something in particular, she wouldn't mind the request and actually insists on it. Sometimes when she wants a new or fresher environment for meetings, we would randomly hit like a cool coffee spot or a restaurant and conduct our meetings there. And sometimes she'd randomly give me gifts. During that time, I used to wear false lashes every day. And one day I went to the office and to my surprise, there was a lovely and very bougie box with some falsies in it. The only thing I could think of at the top of my head if there were any strict rules or behavioral codes that were frowned upon was that she prefers to be called by her birth name when we're in a public setting, as she prefers for strangers around not to know or figure out that she's a literal princess. When we're in the office or elsewhere that's more private, even in our text convos, I address her as princess. Sometimes when I'm being cheeky with her, I call her your royal highness. She's seriously one of the best bosses I've ever had the pleasure of working for, I only left the company because she got married and, due to other personal reasons, decided to pause the operations of her company. She asked me if I wouldn't mind waiting for her to settle things from her end, but at the same time felt like it would be unfair for me to be unproductive as she hasn't decided how long this break will take. After I left her company, I got an opportunity to work for a well-known etiquette consultant who also happens to be an influencer. Everything worked out in the end, but those were the best three years of my life.
1: I worked for the owner of the Bucks and the CEO and managing partner of Avenue Capital Group for a few years. Long story short, I was hired at Avenue Capital, which is a hedge fund, as the receptionist. And I was the receptionist for about three months when I got an email from HR and they were like, can we talk to you? And I was like, sure. So I went into HR and they were like, mark wants you to be his assistant mark himself was a very 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 intimidating person um he's kind of like literally um i think of logan roy in succession when i think of him and like not that he's that 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 vile but very like he'll just walk into a room and not speak and then you end up like being like okay fine i'll be your assistant just that very like very intimidating presence And I didn't really want to disappoint him and say no. I also was like, I'm getting offered a huge opportunity. So I ended up taking the opportunity. I was definitely like kind of hazed into the like culture. He was not friendly at all or he was super nice, like asking me to do the job. And then once I worked for him, he was very, seemed to be disappointed in me like, All the time and I wasn't doing anything badly. I honestly think I was just so intimidated by him and he kind of picked up on that and just kind of bullied me in that way. I organized like pretty much all the meetings of the day. I think when you're a billionaire like that, people just reach out to you constantly. So he would just meet with like, you know, someone's son that needed advice. And then the next person would be like a business person. The most high profile person that would come in was A-Rod. They were really, really close. So I think I saw A-Rod like ten times. He was incredibly intimidating as well. Did not speak to me. Um, did not look me in the eyes, was very like handed me his coat, and then was seemed to be on his phone the whole time. And he ordered America he made me make him Americanos. So I ended up getting an Apple Watch because one night I went over to a friend's house at like 8 p.m. after after getting off, I think at like seven. 30 and I went over to a friend's house and she was kind of having a dinner party and I set my phone face down on the table and he texted me and said like, Hey, we need to change a meeting for tomorrow. I didn't text back. It was after eight. And I think I texted him back 30 minutes later and said, absolutely. What do you want? And he immediately called me and said, if you're not going to have your phone on you, like, I don't know why you're doing this. Like there's no point. And he just totally went off on me um, for not having me my phone so the next day I went and bought an Apple Watch so that I would never miss something from from him ever again. Roles like, like this, you have to kind of just be in the person's brain a little bit. He did not want to tell me anything. Like he did not want – like, uh, he would be like, get me lunch. And he didn't want to answer any follow-up questions. Like, I would have to either ask his old assistant, look up what he had gotten from lunch last week. At one one time, I literally looked at credit card statements to see where he went to dinner because he just said, make me a reservation. And if I would ask, I would ask Allie, and he would just ignore it. He would just, like, walk straight into his office and, like, laugh. There wasn't huge dress code issues. However... The first week that I started working for him, it was a Friday and we were allowed to wear jeans on Friday and I wore leather pants. Definitely, you don't really want to be wearing leather pants unless you're like a size zero probably and someone's assistant. I think that's kind of the case and I'll never forget, Mark looked me up and down, which he actually would do often, like in a very terrifying, like like sexist way in my opinion. Um... Like, you know how, like, people won't get really sexually harassed at the office, but men will just kind of, like, look you up and down in, like, a very intrusive way? That would happen a lot. And I remember he looked me up and down, and the people left the office, and he goes, you know you can't wear stuff like that if you're going to work with me. So one time he had dinner reservations at 630, and he said, like, come get me in, like, five minutes. And I, I literally was so nervous sitting watching the clock got up after five minutes, knocked on the door. I'm like, hey, Mark, you said to come get you in five minutes. And he goes, I'm talking to my sister right now. You need to close the door. So then another five minutes goes by, and I'm just sitting there freaking out. Like, should I go? And, like, another five minutes goes by, and I go knock again, and I'm like, like, it's five minutes. And he goes, I said, hold on. And I'm like, okay, fuck this. So I just go back and sit at my desk, and, like, 20 minutes goes by, and he busts out of the office, and he's like, what time is it? And I'm like, it's 650. And he's like, My dinner reservation was at 6 30. I fucking told you. Just goes off on me. Immediate tears for me, fully immediate tears. He's like, if if you're gonna be my fucking assistant, like you need to like let me know like exactly what time, blah 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 blah. Like I, you knew I had things at 6 30. Like it doesn't matter if I'm in there with Sonia. And I was like, you told me twice to shut the door. He's like, that doesn't matter. You're in control of the schedule. Like, not me. Do I have to do everything? We didn't really have any crazy good parties. Um, He would throw a huge event at his Connecticut home for us every summer, which was, like, amazing. And there would be, like, full, like, catering DJ, magician. The house was huge. Like, a full staff um, like amazing food, drinks, swimming. Like that was really crazy. Like it would be like a full carnival at his house. I definitely had like a weird thing with the wife. Like I wasn't allowed to like answer the phone with the wife. Like I think he just didn't really want her calling the office. So like, and I think they actually had a good relationship, but he did tell me like, don't say anything to my wife ever. And like, I I was like very aware I wasn't going to say anything like weird. I did suspect that there was a woman that he was sleeping with that actually used to work at the company. And I had just heard weird things through the company that, like, maybe she, um, you know, she had, like, tried with him. And, like, the wife had gotten really upset that she was working there. And, like, that was really weird. And that I had heard there was a thing. And she would come do meetings with him often. And I remember once I put it on the calendar And not everyone could see his calendar, like only like a select few people, but I put the meeting with the woman on the calendar. I said like, lunch with like Karen something. I forget her, I forget her name. And he immediately called, he was like, Stuart, get in my office now. And he goes, you need to lock those things on the, those kind of things on the calendar. He was friends with like Bill Clinton. I don't think he had any ties to like the Epstein stuff. And I think he really tried to like... Make sure he never did, like, any of that. I know his wife was, like, a really, really nice lady. And, like, I'm sure he cheated on her. I don't think. I think rich people just do that. Like, I'm I'm sorry I do. I do know one of the men he owned the Bucks with. Um, I had heard horrible stories about him. And at one time, apparently, he punched a prostitute so hard in the boob that her implant exploded. And, like, that, you know, was just horribly dark to hear. But, like, yeah, Mark never did anything like that. I remember being pretty confident before I started working for him, but this was a whole nother level. Like I really felt stupid all the time. I definitely reached a breaking point. I was so intimidated. I wanted to leave the whole time. I just like was kind of too busy to, like if I had gone to an interview, like people would have known, like I I really couldn't, I was not paid enough. I was making 65. Like that's not enough money for someone to be this type of person's assistant. And I realized now that they probably had me be the assistant to save money. It definitely made me realize that rich people are evil and like kind of sick and definitely sociopaths and have no empathy.
2: I used to be a polo groom. I did this mostly in Australia and New Zealand and the United Kingdom for six years after I finished school and worked for people like European royal families, um, some Southeast Asian royal families, um, large scale media magnates, Swiss financiers and one family who owned a major European banking corporation. These jobs were generally short term. They're based polo season to polo season, which is normally about four to six months long. It was an amazing job because for six years I managed to avoid winter and just bounce all around the globe, living in the most beautiful farms you can imagine, riding the most insanely impressive horses and going to some really awesome parties. Most polo grooms are hired either via word of mouth or they're headhunted season to season. It's not really something that you can just fall into at the high goal level. You need to have a bit of an established reputation. You also need to be a really good horse rider. So this means that most people that end up working in polo come from reasonably sort of upper middle class families because you have to have had the experience riding horses to be capable to do the work that needs to be done. Working as a polo groom you're always based on a farm somewhere Um, obviously because it's a horse-based sport you need paddocks and stables and accommodation to go with that and because polo is played by obscenely wealthy people the farms are always spectacular so I spent quite a lot of time in the home counties in the United Kingdom and it was just like what you'd imagine off Downton Abbey or something like that, huge stately homes and beautiful old Cotswold stone buildings and places like that. So everywhere we lived was a beautiful place to live and your living arrangements were always part of the package, um, you know, your boss would want you to be as close to the horses as possible. So we'd have a beautiful farmhouse to live in. They'd provide us with cars and everything we needed to be able to do the job to the best of our abilities. Um, one of the funny things about polo is because it's a sport and because it's a hobby, um, a lot of these people we used to work for had worked out ways to make it a tax deduction to minimise the cost or their tax obligations they'd have to pay year in year out. So. Generally, money was no object when it came to their polo and you could spend whatever you wanted and whatever you needed to do to get the job done to the highest possible standard. Unlike people who are regular employees for you know the obscenely wealthy, because we were employed purely in their recreation or in their hobby or something like that, we generally had... Um, a lot less restrictions on our time and behaviour. You're kind of allowed to do whatever you wanted to do, provided that the horses were happy and healthy and they weren't getting injured and you were getting them to the games on time and they looked fancy and you looked a bit fancy. We sort of had carte blanche to behave however we wanted to. Um, The only exceptions is when you would be working for royalty or something like that. You'd have to go through security clearances and there'd be pretty strict rules about... Um, talking to the media and taking photographs and things like that. One of the jobs I worked in, we actually used to get given a fresh SIM card about every seven to 10 days because the paparazzi would somehow get a hold of our numbers and they'd start calling us, stalking us to see if they could hunt down where our bosses were playing that day so that they could turn up with their long angled lenses and have a bit of fun about that our bosses were really into polo and really loved what they were doing, they would spoil us rotten. So every time they'd come and ride horses, they'd turn up with, you know, bottles of champagne or cartons of cigarettes or new clothes or things like that. Um, you would generally get a holiday at the end of the season. I, when we are in the UK, we'd get spent to Spain and Tenerife and places like that. You had a busy day with a couple of games. We'd get flown around in helicopters to get from game to game. So dramatic and like something out of an amazing movie. You would so often see just pop stars or famous athletes or stuff like that just hanging around trying to get with the in crowd. But it's a real... It's a really closed environment and the people who are in polo are really, really in it. And all the hangers on and all the groupies that are around there, some of them were, you know, some of the most famous people in the countries that we were in, but because they weren't part of the inside group, you kind of had superiority over them, even though we were just the, you know, the paid staff, we were just the workers. There was a bit of a superiority thing going on. Um, because we were in the sport and we were with the people, so when you're in your early twenties, that's you—you know—you're famous without being famous. So it was always a really exciting way of living. Um, a lot of the people I'd work for, you'd get cash bonuses. So if your team won a tournament, you'd get a thousand pounds. If one of the horses that you were looking after got a best playing trophy, you'd get cash bonuses for that. And I think probably realistically. Um, Definitely with some of the people I worked for, it was a way of them you know, moving around or hiding cash or stuff like that. Um, at the end of my time working in polo, I'd saved enough money that I could go to university for four years. The parties around polo were amazing because everyone is young and everyone's doing physical work. So, you know, everyone's bodies are fit and strong and it's a summer sport. So everyone was really tan. Um, it was just the, it was the remit of the beautiful people everywhere you went. Everyone was just gorgeous. And because they were young and they were fit and they were doing physical work and playing sport, it was also a pretty horny environment to be in. A lot of people used to joke that polo was our first sport and sex was our second sport. And particularly in the countries that I worked in, it was mostly, you know, Kiwis and Australians and South Africans and English people. And so you'd travel the world together. You'd end up with this big gang of best friends that you just moved around with. So it was pretty incestuous in that in that sense at the same time we were treated um pretty roughly in some instances like they they used to be a saying that if you had sex with your groom it didn't count as cheating because a groom is a tool like a shovel it's just something that lives in the stables and it's there for you to use so i guess in, you know they were always pretty nice to us they were always pretty friendly But at the end of the day, we were just an employee. And to some of these people who employ thousands and thousands and thousands of people, I mean, they knew our names and they knew our surnames and they knew where we came from. But at the end of the day, everyone's replaceable. We were always aware of that. It may not have been like evident or spelled out to us, but you knew that there would be 10 other people who were just as good writers as you were you know, and probably prettier and younger and, you know, went to fancier schools than you did that would be willing to take the jobs. Anytime you work in professional sport, it's it has to be all-consuming. It has to be all-encompassing. Otherwise, you can't give to it what you need to do to be successful but added on top of that you're looking after you know between between 10 and 20 horses and horses can't feed themselves and they can't let themselves out of stables and they don't really exercise themselves so you know it's like being a boarding house mistress or the mum of 20 children that need to be looked after every day. So even on our day days off, you'd still be going out to the paddocks and checking the horses and taking rugs on and off and things like that. And it's probably for that reason that it's generally um, a young people's world. Like it's, a, it's an amazing lifestyle and it's an amazing career, but you do it for much more than about four or five years and you get really badly burnt out. Um, some of uh, my employers definitely expected to have access to me 24-7. Like I remember one Christmas I was at home with my family and we just had this really delicious mimosa breakfast and I saw that my boss was calling and I answered the phone because I was thinking maybe a horse had run through a fence or there'd been an emergency on the farm. But he was actually calling because he and his brothers wanted to, They'd you know, After lunch they wanted to have some practice chuckers so he was calling me on Christmas Day to drive an hour away from my family back to the farm to get 15 horses ready so that he and his brothers could just play in the afternoon. I finally walked away from High Gold Polo um, when I was 23 years old. I knew that I wanted to go to university and I, I wanted to get an education because working in a physical job you can't rely that your body will keep going forever. So I knew I needed something under my belt. Um, I hadn't imagined leaving when I did, but I'd had my heart broken by this guy that I just thought was the, you know, the absolute be all and end all of the world. And he was someone who was really entrenched in the scene. So um, him breaking up with me, it sort of felt like I'd been pushed to the side a little bit, but thankfully it was the push I needed, you know, since gone on and, Got three degrees, and I'm doing an advanced degree now. And I'm married, and I've got kids and stuff like that. In my heart of hearts, it was the best time of my life, and I will always look back on it, um, you know, with envy towards my younger self.
3: I cooked for the Sirovsky family, um, and it was cooking for Grandma and Granddad Sorovsky. Obviously, the grandfather is fourth, third generation Sirovsky and his wife, and then their daughter, Nadia, who now runs the company, and her husband, and their three kids, and then personal trainer, and then a handful of guests who would come in and out. I found the job through an agent. So when I moved here um, and was looking for work, I didn't want to cook in restaurants anymore because I was kind of over it. Yeah, and so I got the job through them, and I couldn't really believe my luck when I got the call to go to the office for a meeting. So I had to meet two assistants um I remember like trekking into Mayfair going to the Swarovski office and like catching lift up and opening the lift opening into the office and there was like a giant palm tree made out of crystals and I was like oh my god I've made it like I found my spirit home (laughs) there's a giant crystal palm tree um how little did I know I would soon to be like teleported to crystal hell but yeah it was just me I'd be expected to be in the kitchen at 7am and I'd leave the kitchen probably most nights about 11 p.m. I, had, I think I had one day off in the whole time. Yeah, I was expected to have the table completely set for breakfast um, by 7 a.m., and I think that would usually take about three hours because they never really ate together. Um, mind you, they had one gas stove and one induction hob because... One person liked things cooked on gas and one person liked things cooked on the induction hub. Grandfather Serovsky, his breakfast was a fried egg cooked in a really hot pan, which goes against all of my classic French culinary training. Finished with butter so the edges would get super crispy. The tiny bit of salt and then covered in dry powdered oregano, which is just messed up. And three slices of fresh French baguette, sliced in perfect one centimeter rounds. Um, And that was his breakfast every day. They didn't want the same thing cooked twice, which is fine. But, you know, in six weeks, it can be a pretty big ask. The amount of pressure, you know, that they put on you because you're cooking for, you know, 15, 16 hours a day with no support. And there was a housekeeper to help me with the washing up in the evenings, but that was only in the evenings, not during the day or for lunch or anything and they'd always like you know a big family platter like shared lunch bullshit with wine or whatever and so it was just you know it was a lot I'd get up at seven or get up at six run I'd be in the kitchen um I'd cook you know cook and make breakfast and while they were still faffing about and eating I'd prepare lunch and you know some of them would go off the personal trainer or some of them would work or some of them would float around the house. My God, I have never seen so much matching jewelry to swimsuit to caftan situation. Like that in itself was like pretty magical. <laughs> I really, really, really was treated like hired help. And I think in a little, in a kind of in a way it sort of scarred me really from doing much private chef work ever again. Yeah, there were a couple of times where I was sort of confronted to my face. I guess a lot of them were more sort of snide, passing remarks. Like, I remember... Because I wasn't that comfortable with driving in Spain. I don't know why. I just don't think I wanted to, because driving in Mallorca is fucking hectic. And so I asked Hakim, the housemaster, if he could uh, drive me into the market one morning to go for fruit and veg shopping. and the grandmother was standing there, and she was just like... Oh. You know, the other girl was way better than you. You know, she could speak Spanish and she'd just take the car by herself and mind her own business. Another time was, I think, after my first or second day there. You know, it was just me and I was cooking for ten people. After breakfast, Nadia came in to me and she's like, oh, you know, I just want to talk about, like you know, the table settings, the table just, you know, wasn't beautiful enough. Like, we need to, we need to fix this. Like, we want it to be decorative and, you know, lavish. And it's just like, all oh, right. so now I'm a fucking, like, interior designer and stylist as well as a chef. And there was another lunch where, like, Nadia's worst thing in the world is, like, raw onions. Like, you know, maybe in a taco they're good, but I don't think anyone really, like, loves raw onions. And so I, like, made this really nice raw shaved fennel and, like, citrus salad to have alongside fish at lunch and she like stormed up to me into the kitchen with the bowl and like dropped it on the table and she was just like I said no raw onion and I was just like um it's fennel (laughs) and she didn't like that very much and so I just refused to eat it. and then refused to eat anything to do with raw fennel um, for the rest of the weeks that I was cooking for her. And the grandfather wouldn't acknowledge me. I don't think he spoke to me, like even said hello to me for the whole time that I was there. There was never a thank you, we just expected, just like would sit down and have his lunch or breakfast on the table and just would never even come into the kitchen. Um, I think he would just, you know, pretend that I was completely invisible. Unfortunately, chefs, are still, you know, it's still a service industry, so you're really never paid what you should be, you know. I'm not discrediting graphic designers or photographers in any sense, but, you know, when they can charge, like, five, six, seven hundred pounds to a thousand pounds, you know, an hour or day rate, and then, like, as a chef, you get laughed at if your day rate's 250 pounds. So I think the Cerebsies were paying me 150 pounds a day. If you break down, you know the 150 pounds as to the hours that you were working a day, like it was less than minimum wage. I remember one, one day, their son, the kid's kid, also the grandson, asked the grandmother for some money to buy his sister a bracelet from like the little local street market. And she handed the kid a 500 euro note right in front of me. It just grossed me out on so many levels. A, that the kid would have to give this 500 euro note to this street vendor who would probably, you know, if he was lucky, make that in a week or a month. And then also to know how much she was paying me. One of the nicest days I had was kind of I got to take sort of a day off to look, basically, be a nanny for the kids. Um, You know, so kind of doing two jobs at once. The husband and I swam like around three headlands and there was this really beautiful restaurant. I think it was made quite famous in... The Night Watcher? That series? I've never seen it, but it's this very beautiful restaurant that sits kind of atop of the sea in, um, in Dea. And it was, like, mm, probably, like, in, in light of being cooking and trapped in hell, it was probably one of the most glamorous moments of my life. Like, the husband and I swam in, and I was obviously in a bikini because I was swimming, and then, like, walked up onto the beach and, like, dried, like, like sun-dried our skin, and then, like, the grandma, Swarovski, had my dress and just, like, threw it on and you know, swanned into lunch. Yeah, so I was meant to cook for them for six weeks, but then they all had to fly back to whatever various countries and parts of the world. Um, and so I ended up only working them for them for four weeks, and it was that basically I was told that I was leaving tomorrow and a flight was booked for me. And they really tried to fight my contract and not pay me for those two weeks. And, like, you know, I don't have a lot of money, and so I, you know, subletted... I'd sublet my flat in London for the whole time because I was like, well, if I can save some money and save some rent. And, you know, so I didn't have a home to come back to. Like, thankfully, my sister lives in London and I was able to crash on her couch but was still sleeping on a couch for fucking two weeks. Um, and they were refusing to pay, you know, refusing to pay, you know, 14 days of wages, which is like pence for them. So that was a bit of a fight. Hakeem, the housekeeper, and I had a really good time. And I think if it wasn't for him, and I guess like an instant family vibe that we got from each other, I don't think I would have stayed as long as I did or lasted as long without losing my fucking mind.
4: I worked at a company that caters to the ultra-rich, specifically to people who are usually in business, but there were also a couple celebrities. I didn't really have a job title. I was kind of designated to look after the really, really difficult ones because I just somehow was able to mesh with them. It's almost more like an executive assistant. Like I'm coordinating everything that's a little step, a few steps above your daily chores. So travel, um, you know, birthdays, whatever it may be. And it was usually to do with them going somewhere and making sure that literally everything, when they're there, is organized and on the way there. And I would look after their extended families as well. And. You become really, really ingrained in these families and you genuinely sometimes know more about these people than you know about your own family, which is very strange. I was actually referred to the job by a friend. It was just because I was a super organized person. I would move between locations, so I would very much be kind of you know, on the go. It could be anything between you know, me being in an office setting, which is very peaceful and a really comfortable way to do the job, to like, you know, taking calls, answering texts, whatever it may be, literally when I'm like 10 drinks in on a night out, no is not really an answer, you can always figure it out, or you can always find a plan B. So that was really a behavioral thing. You wouldn't just be like, no, I'm sorry, this isn't possible, because the response would just never be good. And it's, there's a good chance that those people have someone else they've also asked. And if that person comes back with a yes, you're really in a lot of trouble. The job does come with perks sometimes. You obviously have access to properties around the world or, you know, things like that. And sometimes they invite you to come and stay, like to see the property because you're bringing these super valuable clients. So that was fun. I got to go on a couple really fun trips. We would be able to make individual bonus based on like things like travel sales especially if you're looking after these super spenders you would you know make a decent amount of money on the side aside from your base salary we did get to go to some good parties. Definitely. There were various invitations over time. The, c- the company that I worked for, they really like to hire from a similar background to the people that we're catering to. So it's basically, you're going to be often hired if you're the child of someone wealthy, or you've basically lived that life yourself. So you'd often go out to the same places that these people would go to and you'd run into them. And, you know, it's usually like private members clubs and things like that. And, um, you'd actually get to hang out with these clients completely by accident. And those were the most fun parties, to be honest. I find that the wealthiest people are very, very polite and very pleasant to work with. It's usually that mid-wealth or not really rich, but you think you're rich, that really become like unpleasant. And, you know, they expect way more. They they sh- slam their feet down and go, well, where's this? And I I didn't really work with a lot of those. So I was very lucky. Artworks. Yeah, definitely. I've, you know, seen my fair share of insane art pieces. Watches was a big one, you know, in the multi-millions, definitely. There was one occasion where there was a purchase of watches, um, just over two million in one batch. That was a really cool thing. I got to hold them and see them and, you know, make sure they get to to their destination i never had to do things like babysit i would be treated really well by the clients i was not necessarily treated well by the company um the owner of the company she was she would treat you well one day when she realizes you're doing a really good job and then the next day she would treat you like absolute garbage you know i had a lot of mental health issues during the years when i was doing this job it was very difficult to manage that because the the hours you know the expectations were wild and it was it was very rare that anyone would be willing to offer any help so it's a very it can be a very very distressing job and i'm a very very resilient person so it was very um it was definitely a difficult 5 years um going through that it was the pay that really kept me there um the pay was extremely good i was you know um making a lot a lot of money um, doing what I was doing and it kind of made it worth it. But, you know, the, the counter side is that you would, I didn't, you know, I, I was losing my friends at a very rapid pace. I, you know, I wouldn't have relationships. Someone actually broke up with me because I was working too much. Um, and you kind of do, I think everyone in these jobs goes through a phase where you do go into that party phase and you really go down that rabbit hole and, you know, you have a lot of fun partying and doing these things and, That was also really challenging because now you're getting even less rest because you're working like, you know, 17, 18 hour days and then you're still going out and you're sleeping like two hours and going to work. Constant access to me was a must. It it really is a juggling act and I saw a lot of people come into the industry and not make it very quickly. They would crumble within weeks sometimes. Ultimately, I left my job because I, you know, I was getting older and I thought, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to miss my, honestly, my biological clock. And I was like, I, yeah, am I going to end up single and alone with no kids catering to these people? I very much grew fond of being able to go on vacations. I realized, you know, the luxury, like how beautiful it is to not be woken up at 4am by a phone call. These were, you know, these things that everyone else takes for granted. But if you if you've been in a position where someone genuinely has the right to wake you up almost literally every night, you don't know what it's like to sleep a full night to not wake up and, you know, want to jump out of a window, not literally, but like very close. You'll wake up feeling very helpless.
5: So I worked for an interior design company slash retailer and this company, which became an empire really was you know, built from the ground up by the main boss, but he also, you know, had brought his family along with him. The job that I began was not the job that I ended with. I applied for a receptionist job. I was straight out of high school. I was just able to kind of walk in there, have my interview and get hired on the spot. Really. The reason being, I found out later is because this place had a very high turnaround because it was such a toxic work environment. Anyone who got hired wouldn't last more than a year because they would end up either being fired or the main reason is everyone would end up quitting. There were no strict written rules, but there were plenty of strict unspoken rules it was very hard to gauge with all the rules it depended on who you were how dispensable or indispensable you were to the company and sometimes they would just choose to pick on you it was a very abusive environment i see that now it really just depended on what kind of mood the boss and his sister slash HR slash office manager slash whatever other title she wanted to give herself. Um, but she was HR. And so, you know, you could see where that would be a conflict of interest and, um, whatever mood either of them were in that determined whether or not the rules, these unspoken rules were going to matter that day. I also unfortunately dealt not just me, but co-workers, everyone, we all did, at least the female ones, deal with a lot of sexual harassment in the office as well. And that, that goes into things that we weren't allowed to talk about. So as I said earlier, I was 17 when I started this job and innocently and very naively, I would brag about that because I was like you know, if someone were, were a new coworker that I'm talking to for the first time asks me my age, I'd right away be like well, I'm 17, but you know but here I was with this grown-up job and so I felt so cool and everyone Everyone knew that I was 17. But that didn't matter, because I was still hit on. And, you know, there were some, some comments that were made that made me very uncomfortable. Times were different. So I didn't really know that I could speak up about it. And I'm, I should have. But it just was very uncomfortable to go to work with all these men and have them make these gross comments to you the, you know th- there are those kinds of comments that because you're a woman you know that there's some ulterior motive you know that there's some double entendre you know that there's some sick intention behind it but if another man were to hear it, they wouldn't think twice about it. I had a coworker and I'm not going to invalidate my own experience, but things were much worse for her. She had a, a very specific issue with sexual harassment. And I think it became assault at one point. She was so deeply ashamed that she didn't, go into all the details she came and told me at one point because she was very frustrated she came to my desk and she started crying she was like I can't do this anymore and you know she was also in her 20s and she cried to me about it and she she explained to me she felt guilty and she felt ashamed which is really sad in and of itself right away I told her to go to HR and that I would back her up no matter what because I had had negative experiences with this man so she did she went to hr who as i said is the owner's sister and she immediately dismissed it then said no 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 i think you're wrong no so she comes back to me now even more distraught and at that point i tell her well if miss hr won't listen then you need to talk to the boss she told me she didn't feel comfortable doing that so we decided to write a letter just describing the incident i also told her it would be a good idea to you know this way it's kind of you know killing two birds with one stone now it is in written form so it cannot be ignored there is a record of it i was so well equipped to handle this all for her but not for myself And I still feel some guilt about how this all went down. She did go and put the letter on his desk. He was out at lunch when it happened. He came back and immediately called her to his office where he yelled at her and threw a phone at her, amongst other things that were on his desk. And he suspended her from her job. And the man who was assaulting and harassing her at work got a one-day suspension while she got several weeks worth of a suspension and he had actually put in for that day off or something and so he was like okay great so he got to choose you know a day off and that was his little break from work and she never came back to work to this day i'm still working to get out of like this depression that stemmed from working there I was not valued at all as an employee um, I was expected to do like a 100 different jobs that I definitely wasn't equipped to do for a very small wage now in retrospect I know that because I know my value a little bit more but at the time I was just so excited to be making any money and I think they saw that and took advantage of it you know you were constantly gaslit while you were there so I just felt like surely it was me you know, surely something was wrong with me. Surely everyone else is here and doing just fine and, you know, doesn't have these experiences. And, you know, I'm just falling short. I did become physically ill while working there. It, the, the depression got so bad. Um, it
0: triggered,
5: like, a lot of um, migraine episodes, which for me um, are... Like aura migraines and some vertigo as well. I would have really bad, like, anxiety and panic attacks that I never had before working there. So, you know, it was definitely taking a toll on my mental and physical health, um, which is why I stopped. One year around tax season, I was asked to fax documents over to their accountant. And of course, I'm nosy, I'm gonna look into the document. There were a bunch of Obviously falsified, I don't know if they're the W-2 or W, I don't know which form it is, but basically reporting earnings for the boss's children who were, I believe, five and seven and had nothing to do with the job, but they were making hundreds of thousands of dollars as well as his wife in order to, I'm assuming write it off or get a bigger return. I don't know how taxes work. I'm not an accountant. But um, what I do know is there was no reason for his children to be earning hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. No, my boss was not a good boss. My boss and all of his family sucked. I am so glad that I'm gone. And no, I would not recommend this job to anyone else unless they want to really badly witness and be like know firsthand what a toxic environment and an abusive dynamic is like
0: and that ladies and gentlemen is working for the wealthy once again my name is ali weiss and this has been tales of taboo if any of you listening have had similar experiences and are interested in sharing them with me under the indestructible shield of anonymity, please reach out. You can DM me on Instagram at Allie Weiss World, or you can send me an email, which honestly is preferable at Allie Weiss World at gmail.com. Weiss is spelled W-E-I-S-S. Love letters, hate notes, complaints, death threats, anything else you have can be sent to that email address. And listen, real talk. I know it's extremely annoying when podcast hosts ask you to subscribe and share with your friends and leave a star rating and a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. But it really does make a huge difference. I am a one-woman show. The show is not easy to make and I believe so much in what I'm doing. Every review that I have on iTunes makes it easier for other people to find and love this show too. And if you love my work, I never ask you for a fucking dime. The least you can do is please leave me a review. Even if you want to say that I have the ugly eyebrows on the face of the earth and my voice sounds like Fran Drecher's, whatever, just leave it. Um, But seriously, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening, for your interest in this topic. And I am looking forward to seeing and hearing you next week. Bye.